You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And this is season two, episode four. Yes. And I think I say this every time, but we really have an exciting episode lined up for you today. Yeah, Sally was really, really excited about this one because one of the author of one of her favorite cookbooks joins us to talk about that and life in general. It's a pretty cool conversation. Yeah. So coming up, we'll be talking to Ashley Rodriguez and her husband, Gabe, about their life in Seattle, what inspired the cookbook, how Ashley got started in cooking, how Gabe got started in photography. How they balance their two careers and their family. It's a great conversation, so stick around for that. Before we do all that, though, Sally and I are going to monologue. No, dialogue, right? If we If there's two people, it's a dialogue right. as opposed to a monologue. So we're not right. going to monologue. We're going to dialogue. <laughs> you wouldn't want to hear us monologue. Uh, yeah, probably not. <laughs> So first, you'll recall a couple episodes ago, we shared our contemporary preoccupations. Right, which was really just a spinoff of another podcast called Girls Next Door that Sally listens to, and they talk about their current obsessions, basically what it is that week that they're really pumped about. Yeah, so we're going to do that again. Do you want to go first? No, I want you to go first. Okay. Sally, tell us what your contemporary preoccupation is. <laughs> My contemporary preoccupation is... So two things, but I can put them under the umbrella of pumpkin flavored. And I know that it's pumpkin season and people are like, oh, pumpkin, pumpkin spice pumpkin, latte, blah, blah, blah. But I'm serious. I'm not just like jumping on the pumpkin bandwagon. I just have two specific pumpkin flavored things that I am pumped about. And I wake up every morning getting excited about one is my pumpkin tea that I have when I get home from the gym. It's delicious and I look forward to it every morning. And the other is my pumpkin banana breakfast bake, which I've been making for me, Zach, and Esther for like the past month. <laughs> it's so good though. Yeah, it's pumpkin and it's only sweetened by bananas. It's an oatmeal breakfast bake and it's really, really good. It's just, it hits the spot every morning and you just heat it up in the microwave and you're good to go. And it's made And this in is your original recipe, isn't it? It's a riff off of um, a, a blogger's pumpkin banana breakfast bake, but I've adapted it and embellished it a little bit, made it even healthier than it was already. It's very tasty. Yeah. We've been having it for a while and I have yet to get sick of it. I look forward to it every morning too. That's good. Cause that's kind of hard. And what kind of tea is the pumpkin tea? It is, well, there's two brands that I like. One is Celestial Seasonings and the other is Tazo. Both of them are really good with a little half and half. What's the one you made the other day that I really liked? Was that the Tazo? Um, I think you've had both. So... I'm not sure. I think you've had both and you like both. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> so what would not taste good as a pumpkin flavor? Because pumpkin works in so many things, sweet right. and savory, obviously. Right. What do you think would not work? Um, pumpkin flavored eggs. That'd be weird. Okay. Since when are eggs like flavored anything, okay. flavored with anything different That's than true. egg? <laughs> That's true. Okay. Um, pumpkin milk. Oh yeah. That'd be pretty gross. That'd be gross. Because, I mean, like, I know strawberry milk is a thing. Right. Which, like, some people like. I don't, but... Right. Yeah, pumpkin, pumpkin milk, milk would be pretty be gross. gross. What else? Or what... Maybe what could you not pair with pumpkin successfully? I don't know. Um, How about pumpkin toothpaste? Ew. Yeah, that sounds gross. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. No. Um, I'm not sure. It's pretty versatile. It is really Obviously versatile. chocolate and pumpkin. My favorite right. kind of cookies are like pumpkin chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. Those are so good. So tasty. Yeah. We should make those actually. Yeah. Well, our pumpkin chocolate chip bake is really good. 
That is, that's true. And healthier probably than cookies, <laughs> but we can make cookies too. Yeah. <laughs> well, can I talk about my contemporary preoccupation? Yes, please, please okay. So now. the thing I've been pretty preoccupied with lately is my new Kindle paperweight. Now, Amazon it's not a paperweight, right? You don't just like use no, pa- it. To... Yeah, paper white. Oh, paper yeah. white. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, Kindle paper white. I think all this time I've been thinking it was the Kindle paperweight, <laughs> but this makes more sense. So I mean, it does kind of, but I'm also not really what's sure paper what. Paper white. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so the Kindle paper white. Right. Now, a little bit of background on the paper white for me. Uh, we used to have an iPad. Uh, I guess I forget what generation, fourth generation, maybe. I don't know. It had a Retina display. Pretty cool iPad. We really liked it, but the issue was, with me at least, you know, I would go to like read on the iPad and I would end up just kind of checking Facebook and browsing the web and basically wasting time. More a distraction. Yeah, exactly. Because it's more capable, really. So yeah. you end up being distracted by, you know, the internet. Right. <laughs> uh, when you could be reading. You so, to do. right. So I looked at that and thought, well, I could just sell this and use the proceeds to buy a new Kindle. And then, you know, I, I can't go browsing. I mean, technically the Kindle has a browser, but it's very slow. Right. It's nothing you would actually use to browse the internet. Yeah. So now when I have the Kindle, I just read and it's really boosted my reading volume and it's, yeah, I don't know. It's just made reading kind of easy to bring with you places. Yeah, definitely. Use it as it's a- super light and super portable. Yeah. It has a nice hard case on it so it can go a lot of places and it's pretty rugged. And it's kind of nice because it helps you read in segments a little bit more easily, I think, because you just open it up and you're right where you left off and you never need to use a bookmark. Yeah. On top of that, you can also underline just like you would underline in a regular book. Um, So it's pretty cool. And on top of that, our local library has Kindle books that you can rent uh, for, I think, two or three weeks at a time. So I've been doing that because you have obviously access to a much wider selection and you don't have to buy the Amazon book. You can try it out through your library. But here's the thing. If you like it, that you can basically just click buy and you'll buy the Amazon book for $10 or $12, which is kind of an average price for an Amazon book, and you get it. Wow. That's maybe dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit. Uh, unfortunately, I've been able to not buy a ton of books. Yeah. I haven't bought the farm. But um, yeah, I've been really liking the Kindle. And it has a nice backlight, so I, you can actually read in, in a totally dark room, which is kind of nice when you're going to sleep because the the room light can be off and I can just kind of read for a few minutes before I get tired and fall asleep. So that's pretty nice, but I promised an unbiased review. So in fairness, you know, what are the weaknesses of the paperweight? Uh, I think one of them would be, it only works with Amazon's format for books. So yeah, so there are, you know, basically I can only buy eBooks through Amazon Mm. because they have to be Kindle compatible. Um, I can read PDF files. So sometimes you can buy, you can buy books elsewhere on other ebook sites as a PDF file. you could create file. a PDF on your computer and send it to your Kindle? Yes, you could do that. But the issue, so the, the limiting the limiting issue there is that the, you, you can't do all the same customizations with a PDF file. So if, if, if you have an Amazon ebook, you can change the font and the font size and the oh. margins and all this. But a PDF is basically just a series of images, right? Okay. Images of each page. Yeah, so the, like screenshots. Right, exactly. So the Kindle just displays that. And you don't have the same level of customizability that you would have in the actual ebook format. But if you try to buy another ebook format, I think EPUB is one. Okay. I think that might be made by Adobe. Anyway, it's another common one that you can use on work. other ebook readers like the Kobo or the Nook does not work on the Amazon okay. Kindle. Okay. Yeah, that's a downside. Yeah, so that's one. Now, the Paperwhite is like the second tier of Amazon Kindles, but it's the most most widely purchased and used. Hmm. The top tier is called the Voyage, the Kindle Voyage. 
and it has a glass display, whereas wow. the, I think the, the paper white has some sort of plastic display, which doesn't bother me at all. But if you really want a nice glass uh, face on your Kindle, the voyage might be for you. Hmm. And then it has these, uh, they're called touch capacitive sidebars. So they're not actually buttons, but they just sense when your thumb presses a little bit more. Wow. That I just, I didn't need that. And then the other thing that it adds to the paper white is an adaptive backlight. So the light automatically adjusts and you don't have um. to, you don't have to manually press the button on the paper white, but I, I don't mind pressing the button because the Voyage is, I think, eighty dollars more oh, than yeah, the so paperweight, yeah. or, or seventy. I think it's one twenty nine for the paperweight and one ninety nine for the voyage. Okay, so seventy dollars more. Yeah, something like that, but probably not worth it for me. Okay, so I'm curious, and I think since we don't have, since as far as I know, anyways, we haven't checked our inbox. I guess at this moment, but pretty sure that no one has emailed us this week. I think that we should have another question. We should for our audience. Yeah, let's do it. And it should be, what do you think about Kindles? Do you prefer Kindle reading or book reading because... And, and we'll just use Kindle there as a general term for e-readers. Sure. Okay. E-reader or reading the actual right. hard copy book because I don't see myself moving in the Kindle direction. Yeah. I've tried to get Sally to, to do that and she's been really hesitant to do so. I just finished <laughs> reading a... So there's a, here's another good thing about the Kindle. Uh, Instapaper, which is kind of like Pocket if you use Pocket. Sally and I like Pocket a lot, but I found out that Instapaper has this little thing for Chrome, and I think it, it's it's compatible with Firefox and Safari as well. It's a bookmarklet called Add to Kindle, where you're just browsing a page, like a, a newspaper article or a magazine article, and you can just hit that bookmarklet. It automatically basically formats the article or the web page into a, a format compatible with the Kindle, and then it sends to your Kindle. So That's crazy. the other day I was browsing this, this article or I was browsing for, you know, long form journalism because I like to read long articles. Uh, and there's this one in GQ called How to Get Away with the Parentheses Perfect Murder. It's a really fascinating story and it's pretty long form. I don't know the word count. I would guess it's about 10,000 words. Um, and I just saved it to the Kindle. And then when I opened up my Kindle next time, it automatically downloaded and I read the whole thing on the Kindle and it was great. That's cool. So pretty darn convenient. Um, but Sally's not really a fan. So I offer, I offer for Sally to read this on the Kindle and she was like, nah, I don't think I will. Just send me the link and I'll read it on my computer. I just think I'm more likely to read it on my phone or if I, I just like the actual book experience. So if I have an actual book, I just kind of like that better. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I mean, I used to be in that camp as well, but yeah. I'm a true believer now. Yeah. I, maybe it feels more tangible and real. I mean, it's obviously more tangible, but it feels like I'm really reading. I so, don't know. so here's another criticism of the Amazon Kindle. And this is okay. not a hardware criticism, uh, but when you buy Kindle books, you don't actually buy the books. You basically just buy or lease the license from Amazon mm. for the privilege of reading the books. Hmm. So it's it differs from other models where you would actually buy the format mm -hmm. through another ebook store uh, or own a PDF yourself and put that on your Kindle. When you buy through Amazon, you're really just leasing the rights the to library. read the book. Yep. So the book remains stored on Amazon servers, and your Kindle can temporarily download it, but your Kindle and you do not own the rights to that book. Hmm. Interesting. So that's potentially a limitation when you talk about kind of vulnerabilities of cloud computing and what big data means for the future and what the future means for big data. But I mean, that's kind of a whole separate discussion. So. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll just end with the editorial question of the week. Do you use e-readers? What do you think of them? Do you prefer books? If so, why? Yeah. If not, why? So 
All right. With that, let's give our readers or listeners. <laughs> thing about we're just talking about readers. Let's give our listeners an update on our garage door situation. Yes, we need to do that because a few of you have emailed with your encouragement for us to stick it to the man. And Zach, what happened? You made some phone calls. Yes, I made some phone calls. I talked to two different people. Um, Actually, three. You kind of went up the chain there. Right. Uh, three different people through our, you know, basically our, all employees of our landlord. And I uh, was trying to basically just get a solution to this and making my case that it was unfair for us to have to pay for replacing the garage door opener when there was a functioning one when we moved in and it no longer functions uh, because it has broken down. Basically, it's a losing battle. I mean, I was told that basically... Well, everyone just gave you the same story. Right. You know, there was no way around this policy that they had made for the residents. And no one was getting annoyed enough to give you a, give us a break. <laughs> and really, I didn't want to annoy anybody. Right, I true. mean... I've, you know, I try to be a pretty nice guy and it wasn't really worth my time. I was just kind of or, hoping that people would be like, well, we should, the only way to get rid of this guy is to. Yeah. And <laughs> I was going to, I was kind of hoping that too, but it got to a point where I could have really escalated the situation right. by being a be really disgruntled tenant and uh, getting angry, but yeah, definitely not worth it. that bridge. No, I mean, and there's just, there's, I mean, right. And I don't blame the people I was talking to, you know, it's not like they were personally responsible for the situation. So, you know, I decided not to pursue it further and we're just going to be stuck with a poorly functioning, uh, if at all, garage door. So, or really it's the garage door opener. So it's, it's really not even that bad. It's not like we can't get our garage door open. Right. And I mean, I guess I've gotten used to it. I just wait until the very last moment to press the button. Right. Right. Yeah. You're like bumping into the garage door with the (laughs) bumper of the car. Yeah. I mean, no, but almost. Because that is something they did is they gave us a, a different garage door opener that has oh, right. a, the, a yeah. different remote that has, I guess, a slightly stronger signal. So yeah. it, it kind of works, but inconsistently. We don't have to be inside the garage in order for it to work. Basically. Right. Because before with our old one, we I think we've mentioned we'd be standing right underneath the garage door opener really with the remote. Work. Right. Or yeah. not at all. So thanks so, for your encouragement. Thanks for validating our feelings last time. Yeah. No solution, but we're just going to, we're just going to move on and everyone will be the better for it, I yeah. think. <laughs> So that's the update on that. So let's now talk about the Democratic debate. Yes, we watched that last night. Uh, This was a very different debate than the first two Republican debates that we saw. Yeah, so it felt like a debate. What a thought. It felt like a real, de- how a debate should, yeah. rather than like a cat fight or a cage fight. Well, so or... I think there are two things going on here. The first is the obvious one. It's hard to have a debate with 11 candidates on the yes, stage. Because point. in the Republican debates, the first debate, I think, had 10 on the stage because Carly Fiorina was not among them. Oh, right. The second debate added uh, Miss Fiori- Fiorina, Fiorina. Yeah. Uh, so that, that brought the total to 11, but it's really hard to have it a bit because yeah. you can't really adequately respond to one another when there are nine other people trying to jump in the fray yeah. that was a debate between two people. But I think you could, if you had Anderson Cooper <laughs> leading either of the other two well, debates. Well, I, I definitely think you could do better. I mean, he did a really good job. He moderating. did. A, he did a good job. Yeah. And it's gotta be so hard to moderate that. I'm sure. But the second thing I was going to bring up is just that uh, there are there are certain candidates in the Republican field that I think led themselves lend themselves to theatrics. Sure. 
uh, I'm thinking, you know, most obviously of someone like Donald Trump, the Donald, uh, you know, a very flamboyant personality who likes saying provocative things. And so, right. and he kind of just takes everyone's attention. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to have a, de- you know, kind of a wonkish debate. So for example, the Democrats last night were talking about the Glass-Steagall provisions of the U S banking act of, I think it's 1933, um, really kind of a wonkish discussion about wall street regulation. Uh, that wouldn't happen in the Republican debate, I think, because uh, there are there are people like Mr. Trump who deal in generalities um, and vague statements that are intentionally uh, provocative. But I still think that if you had someone like how Anderson Cooper did last night, asking very specific questions, not letting people get away with general statements, not letting people... Because there were a few times when he would ask a question. It was very pointed. It was very specific. And it was a hard question. And the the candidate would kind of waffle and, he wouldn't and not let him quite evade, answer. Yeah. And he would be like, wait a second, you didn't answer my question. This is what I was asking. Answer that question. Right. And then they would be forced to answer. And then he would say, hey, you... To another candidate, you were mentioned. Would you like to respond? So someone who's like holding that tight of a rein on the conversation and really offering these really direct questions, I think that could still have been done, though not as effectively, but it could have been way better, even with 11 candidates on the stage. Yeah, I agree. I think it worked better that in the CNN format, there were there were multiple people asking questions, mm-hmm. uh, but Anderson was kind of the central moderator yeah. who kept everyone in line. It, it seemed to work yeah. pretty well. Yeah. And you're totally right. I mean, he, he asked really pointed questions and didn't let him evade. Yeah, I was really surprised. I mean, it started off in a really, uh, I think, um, I don't know, pointed. I, I don't want to say aggressive. It wasn't necessarily aggressive. But I think you, I could tell it was going to be more of a debate than the Republican mm-hmm. debates uh, when he let off with the pointed questions about... Um, you Whether know, or not, I think um, Senator Clinton is changes her opinion for a political expediency. Right. Or whether or not Bernie Sanders was electable as a socialist. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So definitely a a, a more substantive debate that was um, enjoyable in its own right for that. At the same time, it was kind of less enjoyable in some ways than the Republican debate because the Republican debate uh, just had these moments where they were, they were just kind of comical. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's because of, you know, what I mentioned about people like Mr. Trump who kind of thrive on the theatrics of it all. Right, right. Another point to add to that is during the Democratic debate, uh, Mr. Trump was live tweeting. During the Republican debate? I'm sorry. The de- no, the Democrat debate. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mr. Trump was live tweeting kind of his reactions oh, to each really? of the candidates. I didn't yeah. know that. That's so um, funny. And if you go back and read the tweets, they're, they're pretty funny. Because, I mean, really Mr. Trump, he's just, he's kind of, he's an entertainer, right? Right, so, right, right. Um, oh, yeah. my goodness. So, anyway, it'll be interesting to watch these as they develop. I think yeah. especially as the Republican field begins to narrow, we might be able to get a little bit more of a window into. And how the Democratic field might. By widen, yeah, with uh, the potential yeah. addition of Vice President Biden. I think yeah. he's just loving uh, everyone being on edge, not knowing I if know. he's going to enter the race and potentially take voters away from I Secretary know. Clinton. I'm so curious. It'll be interesting to watch. So, I think we'll just keep we'll, we'll keep talking about these debates as they go on because they're they're sure to change and evolve as the candidates uh, ebb and flow. So yeah, if you have reactions, let us know. We're interested. And let's see. Before we move on to our guests, let's just talk about our trip to Nashville. The oh, last that's weekend. right. Yeah. yeah. So last weekend, Sally and I and Esther uh, took a quick trip down to Nashville just to explore the city a little bit. Yeah. And if you heard season one, you heard us talk to Catherine and Jordan on episode five, I think it was. And if you heard last episode, actually, uh, Jordan joined us to talk about James Bond. So right. Jordan right. Short, the, um, the guy in our last episode and in season one with his wife, Catherine, uh, they both live in Nashville. They met up with us, showed us some great food. We had Martin's Barbecue mm-hmm. on 12th Avenue South. Yeah. It were, I think it was 
technically on a side street, but oh, it was sorry, like yeah, Harold's that's right, I forgot. Twelfth, it was in twelfth. It was South, in that district, that yeah, neighborhood, yeah. That was really good. Really tasty, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people go to Edley's Barbecue, and that's the one I've seen recommended on a bazillion blogs. But Martin's was a little quieter, um, apparently a little less commercialized or something. But right, kind of had a, it had a very like local kind of home style feel. Yeah, which was great. It was very comfortable. Esther liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. So yeah, then we uh, explored. 12th Avenue South, 12th, 12th Avenue South, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. We went to, oh, the park that was at the bottom of um, 12th right, South. Right, Severe Park. Yeah, that was really nice. There were like two playgrounds, and so we got to play there for a while. It was really nice. Yeah, in the morning, we checked out the uh, campus area near Vanderbilt and Belmont, which are adjacent to each other. Had uh, breakfast at a great place called Fido yeah, Cafe. Yeah, it was really F-I-D-O. good. Yeah. Um, I had a, uh, a torta with... Uh, local, locally produced, not produced, locally procured, sourced. locally sourced. Thank you. That's what I'm looking <laughs> for. Uh, locally sourced sausage, sausage. Uh, really tasty. And, and, uh, there were some roasted grilled sweet potatoes along with that. Yeah. And Esther and, and I shared a, it was Jack and cheddar scrambled eggs with herbs. That was really good. And we had some great lattes there. Um, our foam art was just kind of standard though. People yeah. after us were getting great foam arts and talking like about it. Pumpkins or something. They are like the Mona Lisa in my foam arts. I'm like, well, I got it's a, like, I got a leaf. I got a heart. <laughs> I got a tree. And I was the first one in this establishment because somebody decided to wake up at the crack of dawn. Yep. So we literally that was Esther. Just to clarify, first, it was not me. Yeah, you. We were the first people knocking on the door of the restaurant. Um, but we didn't get good foam art, so that was a bummer. Right. I mean, it wasn't bad. It was better than I could do. (laughs) And like I said, a leaf or a tree, whatever mine was, but it was not, you know, the Mona Lisa that other people were getting. Yeah. But yeah, Fido definitely recommend. (laughs) And then while we were on 12th Avenue South, we went to Frothy Monkey, which is apparently a national institution. It's been there for 10 years. Everyone talks about it. It's a coffee shop. And I thought their latte was really good too. It was pretty good. Yeah. It was just cram-packed with people. Mm-hmm. You can tell it's popular. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll have to go back because there's so much Yeah, it was, just, it was a whirlwind do. trip. We just yeah. kind of decided, spur of the moment, we're going to head down to Nashville and check it out for a little bit. So Yeah, and it was a little busy, too, so it was kind of hard to navigate. There was um, a Race for the Cure going on. Yep. And um, I think... Oktoberfest. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there was a lot happening. Yeah, we got stuck in traffic in downtown Nashville yeah. for a while, which is something I did not anticipate no, would I didn't happen. Expect but that at all. Yeah. yeah. It did. <laughs> but yeah, so we're definitely gonna go back to Nashville and check it out. Probably visit uh Jordan and Catherine again. Yeah, and, and if uh, you guys want to visit Nashville and you want some ideas, take our ideas, but also tweet at Jordan and Catherine. I think Jordan is Jordan D short. Yep. And Catherine is a short blonde, blonde with an E. E-L-O-N-D-E. Yep. And I'm sure they'd love to give you some recommendations. If you've been in Nashville, then hit us up and uh, give us some recommendations yeah, for our next trip. Yeah, we didn't see or do. All right. Yeah, well, on to our guests. Yeah, I think that about wraps it up for our dialogue here. <laughs> All right. Hopefully it didn't sound too much like a monologue. <laughs> yeah. All right, coming up, it is our guest for this episode. Stick around. All right, so welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We are here today with Ashley and Gabe Rodriguez. Ashley and Gabe live in the Seattle area. And uh, most recently, Ashley has authored the book Date Night In, which has, I think, 120 different recipes uh, designed to nourish your relationship, as the subtitle says. It's a book that Sally and I love, and we've mentioned it on the podcast before. So we're very excited to host Ashley and Gabe. Gabe is a Seattle area photographer, and we're looking forward to talking to him about that as well. So Ashley and Gabe, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. 
Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about Date Night In, Ashley. Uh, what inspired you to make this cookbook? I know that your award-winning blog, Not Without Salt, has been doing food stuff for a long time, but to my knowledge, this is the first book you've done. So what brought this about? Yeah, well, the cookbook came from the date nights, which um, came out of necessity. <laughs> I mean, we have three children, and at the time when we started uh, dating at home, they were all very young. Our youngest, who is now five, was a baby, and I started... Um, we just kind of started a weekly in-home date night where I somehow just sort of had this realization that, goodness, the kids go to bed pretty early. We have all this time in the evening that usually we're, you know, either I'm just slumping down onto the couch and turning on the TV or we both kind of grab our computers and just kind of do our own thing. And I started to see that those hours could be used for reconnecting because we just weren't doing a ton of connection. We were just kind of going about our days and just trying to survive, um, just, you know, trying to figure out life with three kids and all of the, what that looked like. So I decided to, um, one evening a week, we have a date night at home. So for us, that would mean, you know, put the kids to bed and then I go back into the kitchen. Gabe makes us a cocktail. I'm cooking us a nice meal and we sit down at our table, just the two of us. And we have a, a nice date date night in the comfort of our own home and how it kind of morphed into a book is because it was a series that I had um, started writing about on the blog and people really responded to it and responded to um, how I write about you know a long-term relationship and marriage very authentically and not in the kind of traditional romanticized way and just kind of talk about the work of maintaining a relationship and um and how we chose to do to connect through food and date nights at home. That's great. Well, we love your book. And one of our favorite recipes is the white pizza with sausage and pickled peppers. Oh my peppers. gosh, this is so good. <laughs> We've That's made awesome. it multiple times. and It's like our standing date night in recipe. And oh. we make it for people when they come over too. It becomes this like long endeavor, but we a attempt to make it for other people too. <laughs> um, what's, do you guys have a favorite recipe in your book? Man, you know, I, I don't because there's just so many, um, it's kind of, you know, these are recipes that it's not the sort of food that I cook on a regular basis. And, and because I had wanted to write a book for so long, these were recipes that we had already been using and using for date nights, a lot of them. Um, and so they've kind of become like also our standard recipes in the house too, um, and not just for date nights. Some of them are really great for entertaining and um, and for family dinners and things like that. I just did the cachoe pepe and kale salad with apples and currants for our Sunday dinner. And that was really great. What is cachoe pepe? What is, I don't even know what that is. Cachoe pepe is um, your new favorite pasta recipe. <laughs> yes. This so, sounds good already. <laughs> it is so ridiculously simple. It is basically three ingredients. You have your pasta, you have pecorino cheese, and pepper, and that is basically it. And the magic of uh, using the pasta water and the, the cheese and the pepper to create this really creamy sauce, it has, uh, yeah, I don't know. And then a, uh, we serve it in a bowl of baked Parmesan cheese, so it's pretty delicious. Yeah, that sounds amazing. 
I don't know. Gabe might Gabe might have some favorites. I like the the fried chicken sandwich was really good. I think that's probably the the one I think of in the book. Nice. <laughs> Do we you have, have a favorite? We've not tried the oh. fried chicken one yet. We yeah, will though with this recommendation. That whole thing <laughs> it is quite a bit of an undertaking, but it is so worth it. And if the fried chicken and biscuits is a little too overwhelming, then just skip to the pie because it's the um, an ice cream pie with uh, smoked chocolate covered pecans and bourbon butterscotch, and it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, I've definitely drooled over that one. <laughs> Gabe, do you have a favorite cocktail to go with that one? Yeah, I mean, what do you pair with a fried chicken sandwich? Oh, well, is that, we, is that just a beer, or is it there's a cocktail? <laughs> uh, on, on normal normal occasions, I'm a beer guy, but I definitely like the we we had to do a lot of testing to come up with the perfect <laughs> um, Moscow Mule or Kickin' Mule, or we tried we tried all the different uh, variations with uh, gin, bourbon, vodka, or whatever. And so I, I like the mule with the with the ginger beer and. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of my go-to if if we have it. Um, also, the what is it, bourbon tonic that you make is really good. Oh, um, that sounds really good. It's, yeah. it's pretty book, simple but... to make, and it's on the blog, not in the book, I would say. But um, I think lately that's one I've been going to just because it's so simple and and tasty. So, what's in the bourbon tonic? I'm a huge bourbon fan. Yeah, I think I've I've been doing just two to one bourbon to tonic with just I like just a. Just a, not even, <laughs> I like to just ring out a lemon. So just the essence, I guess. Whereas Ashley likes a little, a little wedge in her. He just likes the peel. I yeah. like, I like a bit of the juice, but, but there is a really great bourbon cocktail in the book that goes with the fried chicken. It's, um, kind of our take on a, uh, a mint julep, but we muddle basil and mint and use a little bit of honey and lemon. And then it's pretty much just straight up bourbon from there. That sounds delicious. So uh, how did you guys get into knowing about food? And then Gabe, I know you're a photographer. So how did you get into photography? And did you do the photos in the book? Because they look great. If that's your work, good job. <laughs> well, I wish I could take credit for them. But no, um, Ashley shot the book. Um, oh, so Ashley, those are your photos? Those, those are, are photos. Those are mine. Multi-talented. Wow. Well done. <laughs> she nailed it. So uh, and then I, so I've worked with year, I've worked for years um, shooting weddings primarily and people. Um, and I've done, I've worked with my brother Boone. And so he came up and did the photos of the two of us together. So we didn't have to do the whole like camera on a tripod with the remote <laughs> trying to be romantic. Nice. Uh, just know. how we want to spend our date night. <laughs> so, so we spent it with my brother, which yeah. is also perfect. perfect. Um, uh, but no, so, so for me, it was, uh, I guess what I would say the, the underlying theme for me getting into photography was having people in my life that uh, pushed me and inspired me and, and kind of told me that it was okay to pursue. And so like, um, you know, having, uh, I, I initially, uh, my grandfather supplied me with his old 1970s manual Nikon cameras and, and let me just run around with them, beating them up throughout junior high and high school and college. And then at college, I, I didn't really think of it as a career until I had the opportunity. I had friends um, pushing me to say, hey, you can do this. And, and certainly Ashley was the one to say like, hey, maybe you could leave your job and, and pursue this. Um, even when it was at the time of us having our first infant, <laughs> first child just born. Um, so a lot of it was, you know, having an interest and a passion, but then having people to push, to push me and kind of say like, Hey, this is, this is something you can do. And, and, um, having that support, I think was big because I, I think my personality, like, I think I definitely needed some people to kind of help push me along. And so, um, Ashley was good about just kind of getting me motivated and, and keeping me going and I guess giving me the freedom to do that as well. So 
um, that's kind of how I got into it. That's fantastic. And your uh, website is uh, gabrielboon.com, correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's, you said you, you and your brother, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he's based out of Portland and I'm in Seattle and we, we have a good time um, just at weddings, shooting portraits, all kinds of stuff, um, but, but primarily weddings and people. And, and um, yeah, life is good. We get to, it allows me to be a dad, allows me to be a creative. Um, you know, especially when the kids are young to kind of have a flexible schedule has, has been really great. So on, on that note though, so our last episode of vernacular podcast, we were talking with one of our guests about a recent article by a guy named Am Andrew Moravchik. Um, and I'm not sure if that name is familiar to you, but he's married to Anne Marie Slaughter. Both of them are professors at Princeton. Anne Marie Slaughter, uh, runs a think tank in DC and was previously, uh, in the policy planning, uh, a policy planning position at the state department. So a really, really busy power couple. And Andrew Moravchik has this article in The Atlantic recently talking about how he's uh, been at home as the lead parent while he's been basically enabling his wife to have this uh, very high-profile public career. Um, was that the one that was talking about, like, like, um, yeah, the, how you have, you know, someone, someone is the lead? Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's called um, yeah, I Why just, I Put My Wife's that. Career First. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just kind of want to get your guys. <laughs> yeah, I want to get your guys' opinions on that because obviously both of you are are doing a lot of work outside of the home and kind of basically how do you make it work? How do you balance uh, home life and work life? Um, well, <laughs> that it's it's a great question and one that for us changes constantly um, because with each new season the balance gets out of whack. And and quite frankly, I don't really idolize this idea of balance because I think it's unattainable as far as having like day day to day balance. Some days, you know, there's going to be more work and that's just part of it and some days um and I for so long I was using that um that model and um you know, if at the end of the day I didn't feel like, oh gosh, you know, I had four hours of work and only two hours with the kids. Like I wasn't bad, you know, like that. I just feel like, um, it was a lot of shame inducing. Um, and so I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert who was talking about more, you know, thinking about it in, as in terms of more lifetime balance. So for us, um, you know, with each changing season, we kind of have to reevaluate and say, okay, you know, we just entered a new season where, um, uh, the kids just all started school full time and which is, which is great. And it frees both Gabe and I up, um, to do, you know, to have more time working, but it's still, you know, still there's the question of who drives them, who picks them up, who gets them when they're done with, you know, all those kind of questions that we have to reevaluate right. with each new changing season. And it's really lovely because our jobs are very flexible and, um, you know, we can, have the freedom to say, you know, okay, Gabe's week is really, really busy and mine's not as much. So I can kind of have a little bit more flexibility and pick up some more of maybe the, you know, quote unquote, home word bound tasks and those sorts of things. But, um, I think, you know, it took us a while to work it out and to sort of, you know, I had these notions in my head of, okay, what, what, a, a man is supposed to do and what a woman's supposed to do. And that all got, thank goodness, it all got appended because I, st I stopped looking at 
the roles and started looking at who Gabe is and who I am and then started to really make that work for who we are as a couple and not what society or other influences um, tell us about who we need to be. I really like that notion of a life balance that you brought in and it's really great that you guys both have careers that lend themselves to that flexibility, at least to some degree. Yes. Yeah. It poses challenges at times, of course, but it is, it is really nice and it does usually tend to work out a little bit if, you know, if, if um, my schedule tends to be a bit busy and Gabe can, you know, pick up things here and there. So it works out, but it, it always is changing and it's, we always have to reevaluate. So as long as we're both, um, we both know that and are willing to, you know, um, adjust and we both have to make different sacrifices. And so it's just part of it. One thing that's imp- like to piggyback off of that is to say like, it's uh, the, like the communication is important to, to, um, to be able to tell your partner like, Hey, this is what I need, or this is how I'm feeling. Um, you know, this, this summer was really busy for me and Ashley did a really good job of supporting me to allow me to work more while she was with the kids. And especially that was difficult because they were out of school. Um, and then now we've kind of transitioned back into school and, and Ashley has some trips coming up and some other things to where, um, you know, but I, I think we were, we were, there was a season change where things changed, um, practically speaking of like schedule wise. Um, but, it, and again, it just takes a while because we're, we're working on maybe the summer schedule and, and that was working for me, but not as much for her. And so to be able to communicate and say, Hey, like I'm struggling here. Like I need some more time in this, or I need some more help with that. Um, it's not, e- it's not as easy as it sounds maybe, but just being able to do that and to be able to flex, um, and to realize like, okay, like I can support you in this ways. And then we've gone through seasons where we've depended more on other people and had to bring in maybe a little more childcare for a certain season or reliant on other people. Um, so we've just kind of had to flex and support each other. And I think that's something we both learned from like our parents or just seeing other couples. And again, not, not as much saying like, well, the, the traditional roles say this, but, but looking at other couples and saying, seeing how they support each other. Um, I, I think that's, it's, it's worked for us, but it, it definitely, those transition periods are a little bit tougher. Um, and we're still kind of going through this school transition. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, the idea is to be able to support each other through that. That's great. Ashley, um, Gabe told us about how he got into photography. How did you get into food? Um, I got into food. Let's see. Um, well, I originally was planning on being a high school art teacher. So I was studying art and secondary education. And part of that, that education brought me to Italy for a semester. And it was there that I was introduced to this beautiful culture that really sort of exists around the table. And um, while I didn't necessarily realize it right then and there, but that had such a huge influence on me to the point where, I mean, I was spending all what little money I had as a college student all on food and and um, creating those experiences rather than, you know, trying to take home any sort of um, actual tangible souvenirs or whatever. Um, you would do. So I think between that and then sort of, um, you know, in between after that, Gabe and I got married and then it's sort of reevaluating, okay, what now we're in this new season, what does that look like? Um, uh, and somehow I just started, it, it clicked for me that people actually make a career out of food. (laughs) And I just became 
so incredibly passionate. I knew I could not, it wasn't feasible for me to go to culinary school and, and that's fine. I I don't think that's necessarily a, a must. Um, so I just started reading as much as I could playing around in my tiny little apartment kitchen. I was making, um, beautiful molded chocolates and, um, surrounding myself with, um, people who loved food as much as I did. And, um, from there, I just started working at different restaurants, um, and Gabe and I ended up moving to LA and I worked at a restaurant down there. And, um, you know, it, my, I haven't been super intentional with my career. Things have sort of led me down the path that I'm now on. Um, I thought I was going to be in the restaurant scene for a while, but then we ended up um, getting pregnant and that sort of changed things. And that sort of, um, you know, down a long and winding path led me to the blog, which led to the book, which is now where I'm at now. And now, you know, now it's to the point where it's like, this is exactly where I was meant to be, but just such a funny, long, winding path. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great story. Yeah. Now, expected, um, you know, and not what I had planned. I'm not one for plans, so that makes sort of sense how all it would just sort of fall in that way. But Sure. No, yeah. it seems like the more we plan, then the less it, our plans work out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in your book, you mentioned that you guys live down the street from Delancey and you're friends with Molly Weisenberg and her husband, Brandon. And um, I'm definitely a huge fan of Molly's. And Sally's a devotee of the Spilled Milk podcast. Yes, and I've read both of her books. With. And we really want to visit Delancey. But we were just wondering, how do you guys get connected with Delancey? And is their pizza really as good as people say? Well, it's good. <laughs> and, and your favorite recipe is one inspired from Delancey's. Right. So really <laughs> yeah. um, how did we... So... Uh, I was working at a small cooking catering company. I was a pastry chef at a catering company, and then they opened up a little cooking school, and I was kind of running that. They had, um, and I, but I did not know her at the time, had catered uh, their wedding, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, So I was behind the scenes um, peeling all these tiny little eggs for deviled eggs. (laughs) yeah, I was so bummed that she had decided to make her own cake because I really wanted to make the dessert for the wedding. And um, But um, pretty funny. That's so, so funny. Then they came up and uh, they taught some classes up there. And then we just, you know, got to know them that way. Brandon was doing a bunch of pizza testing in the oven of where I was working at. So I remember when I was pregnant with my second, he would just send me home with all these just pizza dough tests. And so I oh, I'm so sorry. That sounds absolutely miserable. The freezer and literally like after our second was born, I lived off of, you know, just pull a pizza base from the freezer, put some toppings on it. And that was dinner. So that was really handy. But, and then, um, and then we had decided to, we wanted to move down to Seattle. And so we were kind of in this transition and we went to Delancey to help them with their final restaurant cleanup. So we were, Gabe and I think we were tasked with the job of scrubbing the fridge. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> uh, but as we were walking to Delancey, we saw an open house sign right around the corner. And so we went and checked it out and ended up um, buying that little townhouse right around the corner, which we've since moved from. But um, yeah, so, and then I've, uh, when Delancey was opening, I kind of, 
I felt like I was a little bit of a pinch hitter if they needed, you know, someone to do salads or someone to do desserts. So I would do, you know, step in where needed. So it was really fun. I still every once in a while get a call and it's really fun to scratch that restaurant itch. So that's so cool. So speaking of restaurants, if you guys are tasked to give us three must eat restaurants when we visit Seattle, what are your top three? Aside from Delancey. Right. Aside from Delancey? Well, <laughs> Essex, which is right next door. It is Delancey's Bar, um, which is actually has an incredible menu. Their burger is not to be missed. Um, I, I for sure think. And then beyond, let's see. So there's Essex. I would say before Walrus. I would say Le Pichet, which is, it's not a super hyped up talked about, you know, it's not in the latest Bon Appetit. Not, it's just been, it's, it's, it's a Seattle institution, but it's one of those restaurants where, um, if Gabe and I know we want to just have an amazing meal and be inspired by the food and, um, but yet it feels comfortable. Um, and not, I don't know. It's just, it's just easy and lovely. Um, then we go to Le Pichet and there's actually a menu in the book inspired by a meal that we've had several times at Le Pichet. Um, it's the one with the raclette, which is a Swiss mountain cheese that you basically just melt in the oven and then, uh, into it, you dip potatoes and, um, chunks of bread and, apples and things like that and then along with that for dessert there's chocolate shod which is the richest most decadent hot chocolate ever i'm learning so many new words about food (laughs) okay so number three let gabe choose a third i'm not the guy to talk to um (laughs) because i i'm a lowbrow i'm a pancake house kind of guy yeah that's how i am too i mean i'll eat i'll eat anything Original Pancake House is where I go to work in the morning sometimes, have breakfast meetings, you know. Love it. They've, they've got a nice counter that you can work at, and some <laughs> fluffy pancakes. Free Wi-Fi? <laughs> Not Wi-Fi. Yeah, you got it. They, they know your name. They call you hun. And then That's adorable. Perfect. Three by one, three, three pancakes, one eggs, one egg. Perfect. Um, what more can you ask for? Did I hear you mention the walrus, though? What's that? Yeah, the the Walrus and the Carpenter, which is also really, really great. It's uh, one of Renee Erickson's restaurants, and she's a well-known chef in the area, and she has many, many restaurants, and um, that is a great one. It's in Ballard. It's a little oyster bar. All right. Well, that's a good list. That yeah. and Those three in the Pancake House, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll those out. <laughs> well, so one more question before we close up here. I want to kind of circle back to, uh, Ashley, what you said was – kind of the reason why you wrote Date Night In. Um, and at one point in, in your book, you mention a, a guy named Tim Keller who wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And you have a quote from him that Sally and I really liked. He says, only when you maintain love for someone when it is not thrilling can you be said to be actually loving a person. And elsewhere in your book, you talk about the, the idea of a soulmate and you mention how our culture has, I think, really over-romanticize the notion so that people are looking for love in a way that they really can't fairly expect to find love and they are apt to misidentify it when it's there or um, not create it when it should be there. So I just wondered if you could kind of, maybe both of you comment on that just briefly. Tell us about what that means to you guys. Well, I don't know if I can do it briefly, but I'll try. It's, um, <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think 
And maybe I touched on it a couple times in the book, just because it is, it is, um, so important to me that, um, especially, you know, now having children that we sort of mirror to them and model to them what real love is. And I think it was, um, actually in the, uh, oh no, it's in a different menu, but it was when my kids were watching a movie, I believe it was like Cinderella two or something like that. And I remember growing up watching those movies and it was always that constant reiteration of, yeah, you like just when you know, you know, when you find that person and, you know, and seeing that like it's instantaneous between the characters. And of course, you know, one would think that I would, I would separate cartoon from reality, but really if, if, if that's kind of what you, what you see and what you sort of grow to expect and what you desire, um, then I think you're missing out on the, um, on what I think is, is true romance. And, um, because if you're so focused on, um, those, those fluttery feelings and the initial, um, you know, the initial feelings of love and falling in love, and then you expect and, um, that to, to, be maintained throughout the course of your marriage, then you're also, you're going to miss out on, you know, the little, the little daily bits of love that I write about, you know, like Gable, he knows how I like my coffee and he'll get up in the morning and warm the water and get it all coming, going for me and, and warm my cup. And, um, you know, little things like that, that, that it's, you know, we've now been together for, gosh, 15 years or so. And so it's, it's only through that time and through, um, through the pack, the practice of the commitment that we made to each other, then we can both, um, know one another so intimately and know the, just the silly little things about one another that no one else really knows. And, um, there's another quote by Timothy Keller, and I don't know if I put it in there, but it's something about, I'm going to totally butcher it, but something about, you know, the, um, to be, to be known completely and to be loved is ultimately the greatest, it's the greatest gift and it's the greatest feeling in the world when, when someone has seen you at your worst and, um, still wants to wake up next to you in bed every morning. I think that's the most powerful and amazing feeling in the world. Um, and when, you know, when you base love off of feelings and emotions, that sort of wax and wane throughout the course of even a day, I think um, you're missing out on what um, that the sort of love that comes with knowing that Gabe isn't going anywhere and he knows that I'm not going anywhere and that we can be completely, um, completely vulnerable and, and naked with one another and, and still, um, still trust that the other one is going to be here tomorrow. That's beautiful. I like that. Am I supposed to follow that up? <laughs> you can just concur. You want to talk about the pancake house some more? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with all that. I, I think you know the um, maybe the only thing I would add is just like yeah, there there's I think the commitment is huge, and that you're um, in in all relationships. There's times when you maybe want to be selfish, or you want to turn away, or do your own thing, or and so the idea of maybe leaning in towards each other, um, you know, and, and that commitment and, and serving each other and loving each other and finding ways to do that 
um, I think it's just important because like we're in a time where the, the kids take a lot of energy and it's a beautiful thing, but it's, it takes a lot out of you. So at the end of the day, there's not always a lot left. Um, and so it's knowing that we're committed to each other and it's knowing that uh, for us too, it's been maybe trying to find different, um, you know, like date brunches or date lunches or other things where like being intentional about the time that we connect. Um, so that again, it's, it's maybe not, um, as romantic as it used to be when we used to have Friday nights to go out on dates and try all the restaurants in Seattle, um, before kids, you know, like kind of seasons have changed and, and now we have different free times and different schedules and different energy levels. Um, so it's trying to utilize that in a way that's loving towards each other um, and less selfish and, you know, less, hey, at the end of the day, I worked hard. I did this. I deserve to to watch my show on Netflix or I deserve to watch football or whatever it is, um, you know, and more of the like, how can I serve, you know, my partner or how can we connect and, and that sort of deal. So, um, yeah, it's. It's, I guess, to say like it's not, it's not uh, Hollywood romantic, but it, but it is romantic in the sense of building, building love and building connection. Yeah, more truly romantic, I think, than Hollywood romantic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, guys. It was a lot of fun to talk to you. Uh, for our listeners, Gabe's photography website is gabrielboone.com. Ashley's food blog, notwithoutsalt.com, and you can head to our website for a link to uh, Ashley's book on Amazon, uh, Date Night Inn. And Ashley and Gabe, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun, and we wish you guys a great rest of your day. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. That was great. Thank you. So before we finish up this episode, we forgot that we were going to bring back the tip of the week. Yes, this at, week. at Gregory's request. Yes. So this week's tip of the week has to do with pizza. Our favorite thing ever. We love pizza. But and, here's the thing. Oh, yes. With pizza, for all of my life, I've struggled with how to reheat it because fresh pizza is wonderful Amazing. when you get the hot, warm toppings with melted cheese. Crisp crust. And crisp crust. It has to be the combination. Right. right. That's what makes a good pizza a good pizza. That's our opinion anyways. And the opinion of most reasonable people in the world. But <laughs> anyway, so the the whole issue here is how to reheat it. Now, the oven is one way to do it, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. The oven is a pretty classic way to reheat pizza. Yeah, I grew up with my parents using the oven. And the oven's great, but the yeah. oven is not very accessible all the time. So, right. you know, for example, when I have leftover pizza that we made the night before and I take it in to work to have it for lunch. There's not an oven in my work. Right. Right? We don't have a full kitchen. There's a, there's like a microwave and a mini fridge. Right. So the oven's out for that. On top of that, the it oven just takes, takes time. Right. So preheat it. Yeah. So even if you're home, you might just, you know, need to run. And so you have, want to have a quick lunch that takes you five to 10 minutes and you don't have time to do all the preheating. Right. Right. All that stuff. So there so must then, be a better solution. Then enter the microwave. Right. The microwave is the problem because it leaves your crust soggy. Right. Now, I had a friend tell me, and this is not the tip of the week, <laughs> spoiler alert. I had a friend tell me that if you put a glass of water or a mug of water in the microwave with a pizza, the crust will stay crispy. False. We've tried this. I've tried it multiple times. Once. Maybe I'm doing it wrong, but yeah. I, I mean, it seems pretty self-explanatory to put yeah. a mug of water next to your pizza in the microwave, but maybe there's something I'm doing wrong about yeah. this, yeah. but I've never had success. Yeah. My pizza crust is still soggy. Yeah. Maybe it's less soggy than it would be, Right. but it's still soggy. Yeah. Yeah. It just so, turns into mush. It's just like... Well, it's, I mean, it's not quite mush, okay, it's, but it's... 
it's soggy and it's tough and it's, yeah, it's kind of chewy. Good. It's like, it's like moist and chewy is yeah, I guess a better rubbery, way to describe yeah, it. Yeah. Not good. Yeah. Not mush, but okay. rubbery, chewy. All the other adjectives yeah. that I use besides mush. <laughs> Anyways. So now we have found the way. The hashtag tip of the week is. Right. You have to heat up your pizza in a skillet in on a the skillet. stove. Yes. So here's how this works. You take your skillet, and it doesn't need to be cast iron. I mean, cast iron is the... Oh, the, yeah. It's the gold standard for skillets, but it doesn't need to be a cast yeah, iron whatever. skillet. whatever. So put a pan on the stove. First, you put in the pizza crust down. You heat up the crust a little bit, get it at least warm so it's not cold when you do step two, which is flip the pizza over and cook the pizza cheese side down. Yeah. And I think you could do it either. Like, you could flip-flop those two steps too, and I think it would also work if you did the cheese first. It depends on what you want the hottest, I guess, when you, you eat could. it. That's true. So because you could do the cheese and then you could do the crust. That's true. But the key is the flip. The flip is key. Right. You have to do both sides. So you cook the top, not cook. You heat the top. Yeah. Top down. And then you cook the bottom, bottom down or vice versa, but cook both sides. Enough to get the cheese a little skillet. melty, heat up the crust. And I mean, it takes, fantastic. it takes very little time for a pan so to heat up on the stove. So it's very fast. Yeah. I mean, this makes, takes maybe twice as long as it does to heat it up in the microwave. Yeah. It and still doesn't solve your work problem. Easily twice as good. So pizza at work i guess so that's true yeah like i said microwave in a mini fridge so yeah. <laughs> still limited so i guess this isn't quite Cold the revolutionary pizza. solution we thought it was but if you're home it's still a quick and easy way to eat it a is. pizza or if you have a work that has a stove yep that'd be great all right so that's our hashtag tip of the week hope you enjoyed that gregory there it is gregory do not use the stove without your mommy's help though. right that's very important <laughs> so yeah that about wraps it up for us here you've heard your tip of the week and uh we really enjoyed our conversation with ashley and gabe uh, if you would have some feedback for us on that conversation or want to join the conversation then please email us zach and sally at vernacularpodcast.com email us anyways to tell us whether you like e-readers or regular books right and let us know if you have any tips about nashville if you've been there before or thoughts on the Democratic debate. Right. Really, any of the above. Anything you've heard, if you want to react to it, Please shoot do. us an email, Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. You can also tweet at us at vernacularpod. Or look at us on fake. Don't look. You're not looking at us, but you can look us up. Or no, just on look at us on Facebook. <laughs> That'll do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. And if you want to be on an on an episode, an upcoming episode of Vernacular Podcast, you can visit our website, you can fill out our questionnaire, and tell us why you should come on the show. And all of that's at www.vernacularpodcast.com. All right, and Jordan will play us out. That's right. <laughs> that's all we've got today. It's been a lot of fun. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. I'm by your side